This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. How to Speak and Write Correctly by Joseph Devlin. Chapter 13 Choice of Words. Small Words. Their Importance. The Anglo Saxon Element. In another place in this book, advice has been given to never use a long word when a short one will serve the same purpose. This advice is to be emphasized. Words of learned length and thundering sound should be avoided on all possible occasions. They proclaim shallowness of intellect and vanity of mind. The great purists, the masters of diction, the exemplars of style, used short, simple words that all could understand, words about which there could be no ambiguity as to meaning. It must be remembered that by our words we teach others. Therefore a very great responsibility rests upon us in regard to the use of a right language. We must take care that we think and speak in a way so clear that there may be no misapprehension or danger of conveying wrong impressions by vague and misty ideas enunciated in terms which are liable to be misunderstood by those whom we address. Words give a body or form to our ideas, without which they are apt to be so foggy that we do not see where they are weak or false. We must make the endeavour to employ such words as will put the idea we have in our own mind into the mind of another. This is the greatest art in the world, to clothe our ideas in words clear and comprehensive to the intelligence of others. It is the art which the teacher, the minister, the lawyer, the orator, the business man must master if they would command success in their various fields of endeavour. It is very hard to convey an idea to, and impress it on, another, when he has but a faint conception of the language in which the idea is expressed, but it is impossible to convey it at all when the words in which it is clothed are unintelligible to the listener. If we address an audience of ordinary men and women in the English language, but use such words as they cannot comprehend, we might as well speak to them in Coptic or Chinese, for they will derive no benefit from our address, inasmuch as the ideas we wish to convey are expressed in words which communicate no intelligent meaning to their minds. Long words, learned words, words directly derived from other languages are only understood by those who have had the advantages of an extended education. All have not had such advantages. The great majority in this grand and glorious country of ours have to hustle for a living from an early age. Though education is free and compulsory also, very many never get further than the three R's. These are the men with whom we have to deal most in the arena of life, the men with the horny palms and the iron muscles, the men who build our houses, construct our railroads, drive our street-cars and trains, till our fields, harvest our crops. In a word, the men who form the foundation of all society, the men on whom the world depends to make its wheels go round. The language of the colleges and universities is not for them, and they can get along very well without it. They have no need for it at all in their respective callings. 
the plain, simple words of everyday life, to which the common people have been used around their own firesides from childhood, are the words we must use in our dealings with them. Such words are understood by them, and understood by the learned as well. Why, then, not use them universally, and all the time? Why make a one-sided affair of language by using words which only one class of the people, the so-called learned class, can understand? Would it not be better to use, on all occasions, language which the both classes can understand? If we take the trouble to investigate, we shall find that the men who exerted the greatest sway over the masses, and the multitude as orators, lawyers, preachers, and in other public capacities, were men who used very simple language. Daniel Webster was among the greatest orators this country has produced. He touched the hearts of senates and assemblages, of men and women, with the burning eloquence of his words. He never used a long word when he could convey the same or nearly the same meaning with a short one. When he made a speech he always told those who put it in form for the press to strike out every long word. Study his speeches, go over all he ever said or wrote, and you will find that his language was always made up of short, clear, strong terms, although at times, for the sake of sound and oratorical effect, he was compelled to use a rather long word, but it was always against his inclination to do so, and where was the man who could paint with words, as Webster painted. He could picture things in a way so clear that those who heard him felt that they had seen that of which he spoke. Abraham Lincoln was another who stirred the souls of men, yet he was not an orator, not a scholar. He did not write M.A. or Ph.D. after his name, or any other college degree, for he had none. He graduated from the University of Hard Knocks, and he never forgot this severe alma mater when he became President of the United States. He was just as plain, just as humble, as in the days when he split rails or plied a boat on the Sangamon. He did not use big words, but he used the words of the people, and in such a way as to make them beautiful. His Gettysburg Address is an English classic, one of the great masterpieces of the language. From the mere fact that a word is short, it does not follow that it is always clear. But it is true that nearly all clear words are short, and that most of the long words, especially those which we get from other languages, are misunderstood to a great extent by the ordinary rank and file of the people. Indeed, it is to be doubted if some of the scholars using them fully understand their import on occasions. A great many such words admit of several interpretations. A word has to be in use a great deal before people get thoroughly familiar with its meaning. Long words not alone obscure thought and make the ideas hazy, but at times they tend to mix up things in such a way that positively harmful results follow from their use. For instance, crime can be so covered with the folds of long words as to give it a different appearance. Even the hideousness of sin can be cloaked with such words until its outlines look like a thing of beauty. When a bank cashier makes off with a hundred thousand dollars, we politely term his crime defalcation, instead of plain theft, 
and instead of calling himself a thief, we grandiosely allude to him as a defaulter. When we see a wealthy man staggering along a fashionable thoroughfare under the influence of alcohol, waving his arms in the air and shouting boisterously, we smile and say, Poor gentleman, he is somewhat exhilarated. Or at worst we say, He is slightly inebriated. But when we see a poor man who has fallen from grace by putting an enemy into his mouth to steal away his brain, we express our indignation in the simple language of the words, Look at the wretch, he is dead drunk. When we find a person in downright lying, we cover the falsehood with the finely spun cloak of the word prevarication. Shakespeare says, A rose by any other name would smell as sweet, and by a similar sequence a lie, no matter by what name you may call it, is always a lie, and should be condemned. Then why not simply call it a lie? Mean what you say, and say what you mean. Call a spade a spade. It is the best term you can apply to the implement. When you try to use short words, and shun long ones, in a little while you will find that you can do so with ease. A farmer was showing a horse to a city-bred gentleman. The animal was led into a paddock in which an old sow-pig was rooting. "'What a fine quadruped!' exclaimed the city-man. "'Which of the two do you mean, the pig or the horse?' queried the farmer. "'For, in my opinion, both of them are fine quadrupeds.' Of course the visitor meant the horse, so it would have been much better had he called the animal by its simple, ordinary name. There would have been no room for ambiguity in his remark. He profited, however, by the incident, and never called a horse a quadruped again. Most of the small words, the simple words, the beautiful words, which express so much within small bounds, belong to the pure Anglo-Saxon element of our language. This element has given names to the heavenly bodies, the sun, moon, and stars, to three out of the four elements, earth, fire, and water, three out of the four seasons, spring, summer, and winter. Its simple words are applied to all the natural divisions of time, except one, as day, night, morning, evening, twilight, noon, midday, midnight, sunrise, and sunset. The names of light, heat, cold, frost, rain, snow, hail, sleet, thunder, lightning, as well as almost all those objects which form the component parts of the beautiful, as expressed in external scenery, such as sea and land, hill and dale, wood and stream, etc., are Anglo-Saxon. To this same language we are indebted for those words which express the earliest and dearest connections, and the strongest and most powerful feelings of nature, and which, as a consequence, are interwoven with the fondest and most hallowed associations. Of such words are father, mother, husband, wife, brother, sister, son, daughter, child, home, kindred, friend, hearth, roof, and fireside. The chief emotions of which we are susceptible are expressed in the same language. Love, hope, fear, sorrow, shame, 
and also the outward signs by which these emotions are indicated, as tear, smile, laugh, blush, weep, sigh, groan. Nearly all our national proverbs are Anglo-Saxon. Almost all the terms and phrases by which we most energetically express anger, contempt, and indignation are of the same origin. What are known as the smart set, and so-called polite society, are relegating a great many of our old Anglo-Saxon words into the shade, faithful friends who served their ancestors well. These self-appointed arbiters of diction regard some of the Anglo-Saxon words as too coarse, too plebeian for their aesthetic tastes and refined ears, so they are eliminating them from their vocabulary and replacing them with mongrels of foreign birth and hybrids of unknown origin. For the ordinary people, however, the man in the street or in the field, the woman in the kitchen or in the factory, they are still tried and true and, like old friends, should be cherished and preferred to all strangers, no matter from what source the latter may spring. End of chapter 13. Read by Kara Schallenberg. www.kray.org. On November 10th, 2006, in Oceanside, California.